I want to begin with a quote from C.S. Lewis. It says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except maybe Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of it themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites, Lewis wrote, in comparison it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride. And it is one of the greatest struggles that we as pastors fight. Many of you have observed that in me or maybe in other pastors. It exhibits itself in this way. It exhibits itself when, when one insists on getting their own way, acting as if it's my way or the highway. It, it exhibits itself through arrogance. Only I can do this. It, it exhibits itself in, in possessiveness, uh, possessiveness of people or, or possessiveness of a, of a particular ministry and, and guarding that with your life. It exhibits itself in jealousy of other pastors or other successful people in the congregation. It exhibits itself in, in defensiveness. When challenged, it becomes overly defensive, unnecessarily defensive. It exhibits itself, pride exhibits itself in compromise. When pastors get to that place where they desire to be liked and they try to be liked more than they try to be faithful. The danger with pride, as Lewis in the previous quote states, is that it leads to all that I just mentioned and so much more. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 8 that, that, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You probably have heard that before. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pastors struggle with pride. Part of this is our human nature, like all of you. Those, everyone struggles, I think, in some way with pride. And, and so part of it is our human nature. But I also believe that part of a pastor's struggle with pride is due to our structure, due to the way that our, our churches operate and our, and, our, and our systems function. Let me give you some real-life uh, scenarios to to illustrate what I mean that, that affirms this picture of, of elevating the pastor to a place where he or she would have too much temptation to be proud. Many years ago, an individual had a surgery. At some point after that surgery, I found out that this person and the family were, were mad at me. When I, when I investigated why, I discovered that it was because I had not called and prayed personally with that person before the surgery. But in my investigation, what I also discovered is that two other pastors had called 
and prayed with this individual, but I did not. Therefore, no pastor had called. What does that communicate to me? It, it, it makes a statement to me that, that in these people's minds, somehow I am more important than, than not only other members, but, but even all the other pastors. But, but also, something in our structure, something in our culture, something in the way we do things has, has given them the impression that, that my prayers, that me, that I am more important than the other pastors. Or what about this one that my wife shared with me? Christina shared with me how she saw someone who, who was looking a little bit lost at church one Sabbath and, and they were standing uh, in the foyer. And so she approached them and introduced herself by first name only. Hello, my name is Christina. And she began to try to talk with them and they seemed kind of aloof and distant and really didn't seem like they wanted to engage with her much. And so she, she was polite and then walked, went on her way. She told me that a few weeks later, on a following Sabbath, this person came up to her, and now they were excited, and they said, Oh, Christina, we met the other week, and they said, We're so sorry. When we met you, we didn't know that you were the pastor's wife. Sorry, when we met you, we didn't know that you were the pastor's wife. Is the pastor's family more special? Is the pastor's family better is a pastor's family deserving of, of greater kindness than all of the other families? Hey, now I know you're the pastor's wife. I'm going to engage with you. How about one more? We received notes in the office about this on, I won't, don't want to say a frequent basis, but we do receive them enough to, to have it be in our minds. But in one time, we received a particular note in the office that said this. Will you please publish in the bulletin who is speaking so we can know when to come to church? Yes, we all understand that there are some that are better preachers than others. But should church attendance be based upon who is speaking? In a structure where the pastor is elevated... It is based upon who is speaking. But is that right? What if, what if that person wasn't speaking? Is, is church any less valuable? Or, or what if there was no sermon at all? Ellen White wrote, It has often, listen to this, she says, It has often been presented to me. In other words, God showed this to her more than one time. It has often been presented to me that there should be less sermonizing by ministers who are acting merely as local pastors of churches and that greater personal efforts should be put forth. Then this line, our people should not be made to think that they need to listen to a sermon every Sabbath. Ellen White says our people shouldn't even be made to think that, that they need to hear a sermon every single Sabbath. In that quote, she goes on to say that sometimes just having the Bible study is enough. In other words, just having Sabbath school is enough for them. That seems a little different than the expectation that there must be a sermon. And not only must there be a sermon, but the sermon is only something worth me listening to if it is by a specific person. 
Doesn't this elevate the pastor to a position that they're not deserving? This all affects the pride of a pastor. I say that as a pastor, who knows? But there is an even greater problem than the pastor's pride that comes about as a result of the way we elevate pastors. And that is the stunting, listen to this, that is the stunting of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. We, we speak and we give lip service to the priesthood of all believers, but our structure and the way we do church most often, if we are honest, and let's be honest, please, if we are honest, the work of ministry is, is mainly done by or through the permission or direction of the hired pastor. Such a structure goes expressly against Scripture. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open to the book of Ephesians. Go eat pizza. So Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll be beginning in verse 11. And it says this, And He, that is God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Oftentimes when this text is preached, pastors emphasize that the point of the pastor is to train and equip people for the work of ministry. But as I read that text, I see something else. They are the pastors are to train and equip people for the work of ministry so that, so that the people mature to a place where they no longer need the pastors. So that they no longer need the pastors because they have grown to a level of faith and knowledge. They have grown to mature manhood and womanhood in which Christ is now the head and Christ is the one they look to for direction and Christ is the one who's constantly teaching them no longer the pastor. They no longer have to rely on the pastor to make sure they are not falling for every false doctrine and every conspiracy theory that comes across Facebook or Twitter. They trust in the word of God and the word of God alone. They are out speaking the truth and sharing the truth and they no longer need the pastor to tell them to go out and do this or to be the one sharing the truth. And now they play an equal part. This is what the Bible says, that, that they will be built up to maturity, to manhood, to womanhood, fully in Christ Jesus with Him as the head so that every part is working together to make the body function properly. In other words, each one is equal. But we are not structured this way. We are structured 
so that I will have the most power and I am still elevated and we are structured in a way that the churches continually need to depend upon the pastors. Ellen White wrote in the Atlantic Union Gleaner in 1902, January 8th of 1902, the following. There should not be a call to have settled pastors over the churches, but let the life-giving power of the truth impress the individual members to act, leading them to labor interestedly to carry on efficient missionary work in their locality. As the hand of God, the church is to be educated, that's what the pastor is supposed to do, and trained, pastor is supposed to do that, to effective service. Its members then are to be devoted Christian, devoted to, are to be the Lord's devoted Christian workers. The church of today, she writes, is too one-sided. And she wrote this in 1902. Imagine what she would write now in 2020. Ellen White saw that the best way for the church to operate was to have the members see the truth as the power of their ministry, not a specific pastor, that the members see the truth as the motivating power for them to go out and do service, not the pastor. She described churches where the pastor is the main player as too one-sided. The pastor's role, the teacher's role is to help the community grow beyond what they will need. I'm right now preaching from our school, our church sanctuary, our, our platform is getting uh, refurbished and the organ's getting refurbished and I'm at the school and this week my kids started school. If my kids at the end of this year do not matriculate onto the next grade, either something tragic has happened in their life or their teachers have not done their job. A teacher's whole job is to, for instance, my, my fourth grade son, he's in fourth grade. The whole job of his teacher, Miss Mayer, is to get him to a place where he no longer needs her fourth grade instruction. That he is now ready for another level. It is no different with the pastor. Our job is to bring the members to a place where they no longer need the pastor. But our structure is built that, that people elevate the pastor and are dependent upon the pastor. So how do we move away from such a structure? How do we get to the place where all members are maturing to that place where they no longer have to rely in many ways on the pastor? Well, I think that requires us to understand where we were before we got to where we are now. And how do we get back to that place where we were before we got to where we are now? And that takes us to Constantine. Back to Constantine. The emperor of Rome in the 300s. If you have attended a Seventh-day Adventist evangelistic series, if you have read a book on the Sabbath and the change of the Sabbath that occurred in history, if you've read... Uh, church history books about the medieval church and the development of the medieval church, then Constantine should be a familiar name to you. When Constantine 
who was the emperor of Rome, became a Christian. He was the first Roman emperor to become a Christian in the mid-300s. He wanted to merge his pagan roots and the pagan part of his kingdom with the ever-growing and popular Christian faith that he was now claiming. And he did so by establishing gathering, special gatherings on Sundays. This was the beginning of the change from Sabbath worship to Sunday. The change, folks, did not happen because the Lord commanded it within the Bible, but because Constantine mingled the pagan day of sacredness with God's true holy day of sacredness, the Sabbath. And we as Adventists teach this vociferously, that, that, that Constantine mingled and compromised, mingled the pagan with the sacred, and it, and it compromised God's true day of worship. And we, we teach this with boldness and with, with passion. But there's something else that Constantine changed. There's something else that Constantine messed up. You see, Christianity had been up to that point a persecuted body. But in one lifetime, in, in, in just a matter of years, Christianity went from persecuted, the persecuted, to the persecutor. You see, Constantine made Christianity the state religion. And he now expected all non-Christians to submit to the state and its religion, the Savior. According to Joseph Lynch, one of the ways in which Constantine developed this and, and, and emphasized the importance of this in his book, The Medieval Church, A Brief History, Joseph Lynch states that Constantine began to build large sacred building, buildings at the holy sites of Christianity. Constantine began to build large churches in order to to press the people, because he was making the entire state become Christians, now they needed a place for all of them to gather. And so for all of them to gather, he pressed them into these large buildings. What was the result of this? Well, up to that point in history, churches had mainly met in the setting described in the New Testament book of Acts, from house to house. The primary place where, where people grew and, and developed in their faith was was within the context of a smaller group of, of family or, or friends or fellow believers. But then Constantine created these buildings and, and he needed people to oversee these buildings. And so he began to publicly acknowledge and, and pay certain leaders who could trace their lineage back to the apostles. And in major cities, bishops began to grow in power. Bishops were early pastors. Their word was respected, but, but not only was their word respected, it was expected to be obeyed. According to Joel Comiskey, he writes, house churches or smaller groups were the breeding ground for leadership in the early church, but everything changed with Constantine. He placed priests on government salary and encouraged a hierarchical view of leadership. The people now looked to the clergy and special saints for revelation and direction. Constantine, folks, messed up more than the Sabbath. 
we as Seventh-day Adventists rightly stand strong against the change of Sabbath to Sunday. We should also stand strong against the structures and, and the systems that elevate roles or positions in the church above a status that God intended them to be elevated. Especially, we should stand up against those positions when they are functioning not according to God's biblical direction. And God's biblical instruction for pastors, also known as elders, is instruction for teachers and apostles and prophets and evangelists. And really, since we only right now in the church fully have pastors and teachers, God's biblical instruction was that their role was to mature people to a place where they no longer need the, the pastors. In other words, mature people to a place where they became priests in and of themselves. Again, take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. It's toward the back of the New Testament. If you have a Bible with you, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tested that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is speaking, of course, of Jesus. So the honor is for you who believe, but the, for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people uh, for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This passage is, is replete with maturity language. Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. But you are chosen, a, a people set apart that you may grow into the fullness of Christ. And once you were not a people, but now you are a people. In other words, once you were not something, but now you have grown into something. And what have you grown into? You've grown into the royal priesthood of Jesus Christ. So how does ministry move? How does a church move from, from elevating a pastor and, and, and pastor dependency? And how does the ministry move from, from the pastor to the people? And how does the ministry, how, does, how do people move from, from having the pastor be the great motivator to, to the word of God being the great motivator? 
motivator. And how does the training and equipping happen in a church of our size of 2,000 members? Can it happen once a week in a large gathering when one person is standing up front doing most of the talking? Can these things honestly happen in a room of 600 or 700 other people present? Is worship about training and equipping or, or is worship actually, should worship actually become about worship? The one true God giving glory to Jesus Christ who died for us, who, who, who said, though you are sinful, I come for you to make you new and to make you clean. Is ministry to our fellow members and the outside world accomplished by each member of the body of Christ attending, attending a gathering of six or 700 people once a week? Or could this be done? Could, could the training, could the motivation of the word, could the caring for one another, could the caring for those outside the church be done better by growing smaller? Is the value of the pastor lowered and held in its proper status in the context of one individual getting up to speak on most weeks of the year and that's the sum total of people's spiritual experience? Or is the pastor's value and purpose kept more in line with the biblical picture in the biblical perspective when each member is learning from others throughout the week. Now I'm going to talk more about the role of the pastor. This last week I did a sermon debrief, and, and this week I hope you'll watch for it. I'm going to do a sermon debrief again, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about the role of the pastor within the structure that I am speaking of. But we need to be thinking about this. When each member is learning from others throughout the week, when they're taking personal responsibility to care for others throughout the week, when, when they're taking personal responsibility with their group to, to minister to others throughout the week, to intercede for others throughout the week, then the role of the pastor is kept in the appropriate perspective. You know, I started this sermon off by talking about pride. And as I was writing this sermon, I thought to myself, what if Spencerville embraces this idea? What if they decide to really focus on getting smaller, even as they remain a large church? And I thought this, I won't lie. I thought to myself, maybe I should back off of this just a little because you know what? They may not need me as much. And honestly, I'm like everybody else. I like to be needed. I may not have as much control if we really embrace and go down this idea. I may not have as much power. And I'll just be honest, that is tough for my pride. Because inevitably, when churches move to a model that looks more like a New Testament church, gathering to grow in smaller communities with one another from house to house, when the people are truly trained and equipped the way they are supposed to be, so they mature to the fullness in Christ, the pastor is no longer the BMOC, the big man on campus. Things change. Inevitably, they do. In fact, what happens then is, is Jesus is more lifted up as the pastor is brought back to the rightful position. 
And all of us pastors can say we want this. And in our best moments, this is what we do want. But at our worst moments, we struggle with this. Listen, we struggle with this. And the great heroes of faith throughout time have struggled with this. One of my heroes, I took two classes on this guy in seminary. One of my heroes, Martin Luther, he struggled with this. And by the way, I want to say hello to my Lutheran brothers and sisters in Minnesota that are watching right now, uh, Cliff and Joanne Nelson, and they watch us every week, and I love them, and I love our Lutheran brothers and sisters, and I love Martin Luther, but, and he got so many things right, but this he got wrong because he struggled with this like so many pastors do. You see, Luther, Martin Luther, in the midst of the Rest Reformation, when he was promoting the idea of the priesthood of all believers... He saw a group of people beginning to form. And these people were challenging some of his ideas and challenging some of his authority and challenging what had become somewhat the state religion of Germany. And there, the, the Lutheran, the new forming Lutheran church. And Luther stated, if we allow small groups of Christians to separate from the rest of us, to read the word, to baptize, to receive the sacraments, sacraments, we will have established a new church. Luther was saying this because there was a small contingent of Christians beginning to meet the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists. Folks, as Seventh-day Adventists, we have our roots. Some of our roots are in the theology and the philosophy of the Anabaptist movement. And how did they meet? How did the Anabaptists meet? In small groups. And these gatherings had, had, had a power to them. They were no longer just looking towards Luther or Calvin or Zwingli, but, but, but these movements were, were powerful. Most of us can't even name the leaders of the Anabaptist movement. But that movement grew and became mighty. But it became mighty out of these small groups. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the great preacher, English preacher, wrote that Martin Luther, he speaks of Martin Luther, saw that there was a quality of life in their churches, in their gatherings, which was absent in the churches to which he belonged. Martin Luther looked on these small gatherings and he saw there was a quality of life in these groups that, that, that did not exist in the larger gatherings that he was a part of. But ultimately, he could not go along with them. Because what Luther saw is these small gatherings undermined the power and the authority of Luther and the revolution that he was leading. Luther understood at his core that the full implementation of the priesthood of all believers reduces the power at the top. And it moves the power into the hands of the many. While this is difficult, honestly, in my worst moments to accept, it is the right thing biblically. This doesn't mean that we don't need leadership. And again, I'll cover that in the debrief in the week ahead. But, but it does change the authority structure. 
it is the right thing biblically. That, that everyone's kept at their right status and fulfilling their proper role, and Jesus is lifted up. And so I want to appeal to you today to join me in helping our church grow smaller through small groups, through house-to-house gatherings, through Sabbath schools that, that, that model their original intent. Help us to grow smaller so that even as we remain larger, we become a healthier body resembling the chosen priesthood of all believers. And here's my call to action. Here's my call to action. First of all, and if you are currently meeting with a group in such a manner, my wife is a member of a small group. There are others of you that are. I know some small groups have sprung up even as COVID-19 has been happening. Please let us know. Reach out to us and let us know, and I'll tell you how to do that in just a minute. We're going to put up a, a link that you can go to to let us know about this. We want to know who is already living out this principle. If you are a part of a Sabbath school and you think your Sabbath school has the heart and the will to move in a direction where, where it's no longer just the study, but it's also about the relationship and, and caring for one another and taking care of each other and doing ministry together, then, then talk amongst one another and let us know if your Sabbath school really wants to not just be seen as a Sabbath school, but as a, as a small group, a growing community. If you are willing to be a facilitator, a host, or a leader, whatever you want to call it, of a group, follow the link and let us know about that, and we will be in touch with you right away. Within 48 hours, we will be in touch with you to follow up with you to share with you some of the ideas and to answer questions that you uh, may have. And if you're someone that says, you know what? I see this. I see that the church in the New Testament, even though it was exploding, was still about gathering in smaller communities to continue to grow healthy. I see that, it, that in the time of, of the Waldenses and, and the Vaudois, that, that these groups that, that Ellen White writes about in the great controversy is, as the examples for us in the last days, that these groups were, were about gathering in small community and growing. I see that the Anabaptists moved, continued the Reformation, pulled the Reformation forward, that Luther and, and Calvin and Zwingli had started in order to and they did so through small gatherings. I see in history that, that John Wesley and the Methodist movement, out of which many of our founders came, grew out of gathering in, in small groups for accountability. And I see even in our own history of Adventism, when Ellen White says, I have been shown by one who cannot err, that in a, a large church, which at her time was 50, 60, 70, 100 people, in a large church, small companies should be gathered together to not only support one another, but to do work for those outside, to encourage one another, to study, to pray with one another. I see that throughout history, the church in its healthiest state, no matter how large it is, includes people gathering in small communities together. And I want to gather. If that's you, then will you please let us know that you want to be a part of that as well. Folks, help us as we remain a large church to, to grow smaller and to grow 
more in line with the biblical picture of Christ as the head and the pastors training and equipping people to the point that they no longer need the pastor. That they, in and of themselves, that you are part of the fullness of the body of Christ, the priesthood of all believers. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you are so patient with us and, and throughout history you continue to come back to this again and again to, to, to try to remind us of what your picture truly is of the church. It is not just the pomp and the circumstances. Sometimes there is those moments of great celebration that we need. We see those in the history of Israel, but, but more often, Lord, the truth the work, the message has, be, has been carried forth two by two, three by three in small communities. Lord, we want to be faithful to the biblical picture. I want to be a pastor faithful to the biblical calling that you have laid upon pastors not to manage, not to just stand up and preach, but to train and equip people so that they come to the place where they are fully matured, as the Bible says in Ephesians 4, with Christ as the head. And they are an equal, playing an equal role and an equal part in making your body, the church, complete. Lord, help me, help the pastors on our team to be able to operate in such a way. And I pray, Jesus, I pray for our elders that they will shepherd the flock amongst them as well, that they will gather some people as well amongst them. Lord, so this is my appeal. I pray that you'll begin working on my heart, that you'll begin working on others' hearts, even as I preach this message. In your name, amen.